speaker and a uh, diplomatic and international history speaker program. Uh, Thomas Lila is a professor of history at the University of Colorado Boulder. He's also the current president of the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations and the executive editor of the journal Diplomatic History, which um, was a mainstay at Ohio State before it moved to the University of Colorado a number of years ago, and it has uh, stayed in, in very, uh, very wise and capable hands. Uh, Professor Zeiler is the author of, of um, a number of books. I'm not even going to mention all of them. His first several works dealt with US trade policy during the early Cold War period, and he certainly emerged as one of the leading scholars of US economic policy. In, in recent years, he's branched out and, and written on a number of different topics. He's, he's written a, um, a book called Annihilation, a global history of World War II. Um, several years ago, he published uh, a book called Ambassadors in Pinstripes, the Spalding World Baseball Tour and the Birth of the American Empire. And when he served in Japan several years ago as a senior Fulbright scholar, it turned out that uh, Japanese universities were more interested in his expertise in baseball <laughs> for lecture opportunities than they were in his expertise in U.S. international history. <laughs> He's also written a short, a short biography of former Secretary of State Dean Rusk, and, and among other books, uh, Unconditional Defeat, Japan, America, and the End of World War II. He's uh, also served as a senior Fulbright scholar in Argentina, as, as well as uh, Japan, and, and he's going to be undergoing some hardship duty teaching in, in France uh, this summer. So without any further embellishments on his very, very strong academic career, let me uh, turn the microphone over Thank to you, Tom Seiler. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Bob. That's amazing. I always say it's amazing what you can do with words. Um, thanks for having me out. It's, um, uh, I, we were just talking earlier about uh, your weather, uh, which is wonderful, um, and we've had it too. Um, we don't usually have spring uh, in Colorado. It, it goes from winter uh, to winter, and then there's a day of summer, then winter, and then it, summer hits. Um, so it's very, it's very nice to be here, and I thank the Mershon Center and, and Bob especially for um, inviting me. Um, I, I'm going to talk today actually uh, a bit about diplomacy, but really about um, the economy uh, and some research I've been in, really have, have launched over the last year or so. So this is a work in progress, but it is also um, a draft of my, I hope, my presidential address uh, in a few months to Schaefer. Um, and it's a study, I think, uh, I'm hoping to make a point about the importance of of class um, and um, in, in the study of American foreign relations, uh, something we don't do a whole lot of, uh, if at all. Um, kind of uh, feeds off my work on international economy uh, and globalization. Um, and it's also, in a way, it's, it, as you'll see, is presentist, which I'll probably get in trouble with you and the Schaefer membership uh, because it very much responds to uh, the, the uh, current or just past economic downturn, uh, which was uh, so, I, I think, uh, very important. Um, so let me begin, and I'd, I'd welcome your questions and comments. Um, there's things that I'm probably going to move around uh, later on, but I certainly appreciate uh, this opportunity uh, to try out some ideas. Um, uh, if I'm way off base, then, uh, as usual, then certainly point that out, too. Um, in the wildly popular sitcom, All in the Family, Archie Bunker had two problems on the night of November 27, 1971. Because his house was located in a so-called high-risk neighborhood of mixed races in Queens, New York, he feared cancellation of his home insurance policy 
that his nephew had sold him. Adding to his woe, the bad economy forced Archie to fire one of his workers. He chose little Emmanuel, a Puerto Rican, over the white slacker Stretch Cunningham to the disgust of his liberal son-in-law who, who Archie disdainfully called Meathead. Trying to save his job, Emmanuel appeared at the door as Archie's nephew, the insurance agent, explained to Archie that he was just a small fry with no power to save Archie's homeowner's policy. The irony then dawned on Archie as he then faced down Emmanuel and he resorted to parroting his nephew. I can't do anything for you, Archie confessed to Emmanuel to save your job. I'm only a little man. These decisions are made by the big men upstairs. It's the way the system operates. Asked Emmanuel, where do I go to talk to this system? And Archie, the celebrant of those bygone days when Glenn Miller played and the old LaSalle ran great, explained, you can't talk to the system. It ain't a person. I don't know what it is. See, all I know it is I'd like to help you out, but I can't. I'm really sorry. All in the Family, then in its second season, and its iconic, bigoted Archie Bunker character, captured the early 1970s threat to the American dream. Archie faced his dilemma as the little guy left out of a changing system, a system that favored educated and cosmopolitan elites within the global marketplace. An era had ended. The vaunted American century was closing. It lasted, to make a case, actually just 26 years into the post-World War II era. The middle class began to suffer due to an exodus of jobs in manufacturing and other reasons. And politicians from both the right and left pushed a vision of classical liberal economics that only worsened inequality as the necessary cost of ideological purity. Fast forward to 2008 when the financial system collapsed. Unemployment shot up, conjuring up images of the Great Depression, not to trivialize the terrorist attack of 2001, but this economic 9-11 might yield consequences as transformative as the Pi movement highlighted. Regardless of their lack of clarity and probable historical insignificance, these Occupy protesters gave focus to anxieties felt by the public at large. They revealed a sizable alienated segment of the population, like Marx's proletariat in the 19th century. They hailed from different backgrounds, from the Archie Bunkers. Indeed, I think Archie would probably be a Tea Partier, fearful of change, minorities, and liberal social values. But they had similar gripes. For decades, these classes were undermined by the tax and trade policies of distant bureaucracies, corporate managers, shareholders and financiers on Wall Street and abroad, agencies and institutions that were unaccountable to the voter at the same time as they were direct beneficiaries of the great process of our time, globalization. Globalization speeds economic integration and spurs great wealth. Export and investment growth skyrockets, global currency flows circulating now at $4 trillion a day multiply and worldwide poverty has trended downward. Forty years ago, when Nixon turned away from the limits of gold convertibility, the flows of both money and direct investments across borders climbed ever higher. Soon business manufactured not only for host countries, but for the huge American market as well, placing unionized jobs in jeopardy. Globalization thus was also the culprit in hollowing out the middle class. Wealth does not automatically recycle into homes here and overseas. Although the reasons are many, dazzling technology-induced globalization has had the greatest impact on the myriad of transnational losers, including the average American, roughly 85% of the population, and the average Spaniard, average Chinese, and Indian, discounting those ambitious and talented enough to become billionaires, if we take into account working conditions rather than fixating on levels of employment. 
In America, although statistics are tricky to use because of the various ways of measuring inequality, the general consensus is that the gap between rich and middle lower classes has sizably widened since the 1970s. In addition, the rate of growth in this gap is revealing while the top fifth of earners, ignoring the infamous 1% who really skew the numbers, the top fifth of earners saw their income rise from 1979 to 2005 by 69%. The lowest to the middle two quintiles rose from just 6 to 21% respectively. And this does not include, obviously, figures for the Great Recession of 2008-2010, in which we can presume that the chasm widened and income really stagnated ever more for the middle class. I should add that over the past 30 or 40 years, oftentimes two earners, two earners were necessary in a household to maintain middle class status. Such inequality has long been a part of American and global history. It's no surprise, but it has been particularly true for some 40 years, since, in fact, August 15, 1971. On that day, President Nixon announced his ineptly named New Economic Policy, the communist moniker used by Lenin for his economic program in the 1920s. This heralded the end of the American century that began with the end of World War II, though most commentators mark its official demise a bit, a bit later. Regardless, it's clear the, that American intellectual, cultural, and social influence was not over. Americanization led to cultural globalization, the spread of ideas and practices. Think of Hollywood. Think of the Internet, the push for human rights, and the expansion of foreign students coming to America. And the American economy remained powerfully influential, a driver of global growth, as it refashioned itself to a consumer base fueled by net imports of goods and capital. But... U.S. economic hegemony was coming to an end, and particularly dominance predicated on manufacturing and labor power. Workers might benefit from cheap consumer prices and provide for their families, but being nickeled and dimed with part-time jobs and scant benefits by Walmart and other retailers and low-paying service companies was not the answer to being able to live the American dream of well-paid work and mobility for children. And above all, Perceptions are just as important as reality and sometimes create or inform reality. The average Archie Bunkers recognize that the end was near, at least in an economic sense, by 1971. Like the Great Recession of 2008, as it was sometimes called, the Great Recession of 1971 induced fresh questioning about economic doctrines. One was free trade dogma. Many suspected at the time that liberal trade policies undercut basic industries. We now know that was correct. Some embrace of the taboo of protectionism seemed justified. Time after time, bankers and companies came out on top of workers who found themselves exposed to foreign competition, boosted by low tariffs. That, boost, that benefited U.S.-based multinational corporations who produced abroad and the financiers behind them. The government's post-war push for a combination of free trade and the labor-corporate social compact that exchanged the redistribution of wealth, union militancy, and safety nets for the promise of growing living standards helped capitalists control and streamline production and, of course, helped win the Cold War, too. But, the, but they expanded the global economic arena without heed to the impact at home. August 15, 1971 brought the end of the so-called age of the factory, as historian Judith Stein has noticed, and the run-up to our current age of inequality. Manufacturing employment, though not production, declined. Labor-intensive jobs and later high-skilled labor moved offshore. Workers acknowledged the new era. Nixon heard him and read the tea leaves regarding his political fortunes. Earlier, he famously stole a line from economist Milton Friedman by telling a journalist that, I'm a Keynesian now but he needed to act on those words. Did he have a grip on American and global economic maladies? If not, the fast-closing wolves of economic despair could dash his 1972 re-election chances. The inflation rate had hit a seemingly unsolvable 8.4%, and the unemployment rate had reached 6% and was rising. In 100 years, and not even at the height of the Great Depression, Industrial capacity had never been as idle as it was in 1971 at 27%. The year before, 
The gross national product declined for the first time in 12 years. And other sign, ominous signs of the crashing American century came in the nation's international accounts. The balance of payment deficit for the second quarter of 1971 reached an all-time high, and the United States ran its first trade deficit of the 20th century, the last deficit had occurred in 1893. Nixon realized if something was not done to shore up the economy and solve unemployment, he risked becoming the Herbert Hoover, a ridiculed one-term president of the post-war years. To be sure, many blue-collar workers patriotically sided with Nixon on Vietnam. The so-called silent majority shared his cultural indignation towards 60s liberalism and radicalism that he so skillfully cultivated. He wanted America's Archie Bunkers in his economic camp, too. Nixon actually mentioned the new show, All in the Family, about, a, as he told his aides, a hard hat who looked like Jackie Gleason and originally thought it was called Archie's Guys. Because of the long, of the long hair son-in-law, Meathead, Nixon believed the show glorified homosexuality, which disgusted him no matter, as he said, his professed respect for the Greeks. Still, he was somewhat in tune with the times. Opening, and you knew who you were then. Girls were girls and men were men, as well as harkened back to those days when they didn't need no welfare state. Everybody pulled his weight. But while being the linchpin of his planned new majority, white workers might not find their shared enthusiasm for the cultural counter-revolution to be reason enough to forget their economic interests and hop into bed with conservatives. So there were limits to patriotic internationalism. Hard hats worried about the new obstacles to mobility for their children, held little interest in foreign nations, and they were anxious about their own economic and social status. Middle-aged workers who had grown up in the American century identified with the resentful Archie Bunker. Said a shopkeeper in Oregon, for me and Archie, it's too late for us. The Vietnam War might have polarized the masses, but the economic crisis indicated they had entered the anxious years, which for them would not unfortunately end over the next 40 We've never been able to splurge the 33-year-old Pennsylvania housewife in August 1971, but now we can't even pay for things we need to keep going. Ominously, there were at least two million or so Vietnam veterans on the verge of entering the workplace. Nixon had to act. As Democrats hammered at Nixon's credibility gap due to his rosy projections of recovery that were clearly unattainable, the administration searched for a way out. As a moderate conservative in most ways, but a, largely a mainstream liberal on economics and one of a declining handful of those in the Republican Party, Nixon came up with a politically brilliant plan to right the economic ship of state and enhance the president's political standing, both by making him look like a resolute leader and spreading the sacrifice around. He would undertake some Keynesian pump priming. That is, he would regulate demand and production with Keynes-style fiscal and monetary manipulation, namely through the gold standard. John Maynard certainly would not have recommended the budgetary and wage measures that Nixon also imposed, but the president had the conservative credentials to adopt Keynesian politics or policies. Much as he had opened the door to relations with China, no conservative could accuse Richard Nixon of selling out on market principles as long as the actions were temporary, and more important, as long as they worked. And so the drama of August 15th unfolded. On Friday, August 13th, Nixon's top political and economic advisors secretly flew to Camp David in separate helicopters from different locations. At the presidential retreat, they signed the guest book, well aware of the historic significance of their deliberations. When they departed on Sunday, Nixon gave each man a blue windbreaker with the presidential seal to commemorate, as he called it, a weekend that would long be remembered. The president had talked with the Reverend Billy Graham, who urged him to issue a Kennedy-esque call to greatness. Nixon fully agreed with the need to embellish his self-image as a moral leader, and as the meetings ended at Camp David, Nixon walked into an empty living room turned off the lights, and despite the summer weather, got the fireplace going 
in one of his mystic moods, recalled advisor H.R. Haldeman, he compared himself to, to to Franklin Roosevelt in his desire to raise the spirit of the country. He noted, we're at a time where we're ending a period where we're saying that government should do everything, a close of the era of grand expectations. It was now time for Americans to have faith in our principles and a new spirit of vigor. Richard Nixon, historian Robert Collins has noted, would position America in the post-Cold War order as it shifted from security to economic struggle by a vision of refiring the very essence of America. On the warm Sunday night of August 15th, his television appearance even preempted the popular Western bonanza. He wanted to make a big play in a national address before the markets opened on Monday. Typically, Nixon preferred to counter his critics, shock his allies, and save his skin with dramatic announcements. And here was one. In 1958, President Dwight Eisenhower had heeded the advice of bankers to raise interest rates. And the economy had tailspinned into a recession that cost his then Vice President Richard Nixon, so thought Nixon, the 1960 presidential election. Nixon would not be guilty of timidity this time around, either in tone or message. His August 15th declaration, entitled The Challenge of Peace, had a decidedly international context, but it aimed for recovery at home. The speech prominently outlined a 90-day freeze on all wages, prices, and rents, but note, not on interest rates or business profits, to be extended in subsequent phases. The other key feature of his speech was a refusal to buy and sell gold as dictated by the American-led Bretton Woods monetary system in global financial transaction. Within days, that resulted in the devaluation of the dollar by 13.5% against the German mark and nearly 17% to the Japanese yen, thus overnight making American exports cheaper and imports more expensive. Within months, trading nations would allow markets to gauge the value of currency and thus end the gold dollar standard that fixed the amount of dollars in circulation to a predetermined pegged price of gold. And that resulted in the floating of currencies that we have today based on market demand. That had the long-term effect of pouring a tremendous volumes of money into, the, into global exchanges. And that became a catalyst to globalization. Nixon also placed a controversial 10% import surcharge um, or punitive tariff on all foreign goods not subject to quotas. He then issued a host of other measures to cut the federal budget, limit spending, and boost business. Hurtling over traditional market mechanisms, he converted a diplomatic and economic defeat, the end of the gold standard and the end of the American Bretton Woods system, uh, to victory in domestic politics. The next morning, Monday, stocks rallied to their largest one-day gain in history to that day. That huge jump was, get this, 32 points, how times have changed. A record 31 million shares were traded. In a Europe faced with dollar devaluation, however, stock markets crashed and currency markets were suspended. As the Dow closed at just above 889 points, Variety magazine headlined that the new score is Dow 32, Nixon 72. Economic stimulant had joined political and spiritual uplift. The networks reported the enthusiasm in crowds when Nixon, upbeat to the great irritation of outflanked Democrats as he embarked for a trip across country, pledged that America was not withdrawing from the world. On the contrary, contrary, at Idaho Falls three days later, he gazed toward the Grand Tetons and invoked the frontier spirit of pioneers. They had to be a rugged and strong people to cross those plains, come up those mountains, and develop this area. And that kind of spirit, he said, would keep America on top once again. But in the last analysis, Nixon warned, we just can't have the American domestic economy constantly hostage to the international monetary situation. His Secretary of the Treasury, 
The audacious Texan John Connolly also preferred theatrics and short-term fixes to subtlety. He would quarterback the operation while Nixon coached it along. Like his boss, Connolly, who Nixon greatly esteemed, later came to regret August 15th. Controls, he ultimately concluded, should be used only as a last resort. But this was a golden opportunity in a political sense. Connolly reveled in the impact. He said of slamming the gold window, no longer now could um, dollar holders overseas exchange that dollar for gold, which was draining the American gold um, supplies. Um, he said of slamming the gold window and junking the 27-year-old Bretton Woods system to bring dollar devaluation without paying for America, there is no question but what it shook him up abroad, said Connolly. And it rattled him at home as well. Connolly had apparently whispered to close friends that, quote, the Europeans have been screwing us and the pimping has been done by the Eastern establishment, close quote. No more. According to Connolly, Wall Street, along with the State Department, were traitors to blue-collar nationalism. Years later, the cosmopolitan operators of the post-war regime of multinational liberalism, including Federal Reserve Chair Arthur Burns and the entire State Department, would pillory August 15th for killing a system that provided stability in trade and discipline on wage rates and budget deficits. But they overlook the short-term effects, and the long-term effects as well, the new economic policy which neither Connolly nor Nixon pondered much in its long-term effects, along with the technological revolution, helped push the world into the modern era of globalization with its violent economic swings and capitalist entrepreneurial ethic. Business generally was pleased by Nixon's pronouncements, knowing price controls couldn't hold. Automakers, for instance, had jacked prices before the announcement, so price constraints had little effect over the next 90 days. Inflation was under attack, but low interest rates and tax credits would boost the retail, trade, housing, and stock markets, and corporate investments. The only criticism from friends, from friends that I could find came from the former director of the newlywed game, TV executive Bill Carruthers, who wished Nixon had not worn a blue suit that made his neck look gray on camera. The rest of it, business was in favor of. And what about the worker? Connolly claimed that every job in this industrial society now costs about 11000 or 12000 whatever that figure is. And just to say now that this money has to come from somewhere and there's a shortage of capital throughout the world is not the answer. So Nixon, he said, could cover all the goddamn criticism, Connolly, Connolly told Haldeman, by creating opportunities to be more competitive. Translated, the government privileged cap global flows of capital and trade over aid and higher wages for workers. This was a cynical ploy. Nixon promised to protect the interests of the silent hard hats who were critical to his 1972 electoral American majority. By doing so, he also lied. Nixon land rested on deceiving the Archie Bunkers that he was on their side, that he was the Nixon of the checkers speech of 1952, who drove a regular car and outfitted his wife in a modest cloth coat. Americans would be better off, he promised, able to buy as much with their dollars as ever before. And sure, in the coming years, workers would be able to stretch their dollars further by buying imported goods in big box stores. There was a trade-off of sorts between the pitfalls of deregulation, or deregulation excuse me, and consumerism. But consumption did not speak to the losses of good, skilled, and well-paid factory jobs that were critical to fulfilling the American dream. Nixon was selling workers a bill of goods but nobody really noticed the fiction at the time. The Amer administration packaged the plan as a benefit for average, the average American. Connolly asserted that the import surcharge, for example, provided a means and a time where American industry and American workmen can retain their competitive spirit and their competitive capabilities. But in reality, the administration sought to use the 10% surcharge to shock trade partners, not help labor, and stress Nixon's ultimatum to end the dollar-gold link. When it came to labor, Connolly admitted that there may be some inequities, as he said, in the August 15th program, but claimed they would be temporary. Like most administrators then and now, he didn't really adhere to the vision of some sort of managed economy to help workers. 
Rather, he stated, recovery hinged on the ingenuity, the imagination, the vitality of the private sector of this economy. The president was not willing to supplant the pri private initiative with the dead hand of government. And just as Archie Bunker learned, the big boys at the top allowed the system to determine winners and losers. Individuals, the nation as a whole, might prosper, even if the system was stacked against the majority of people. Foreign governments, by the way, were appalled, angers, or angered, or resigned by the gold dollar termination and the tariff surcharge moves. Trade partners saw the gold cutoff as an underhanded backdoor devaluation, and the import surcharge as double punishment, as well as insulting. Japanese officials rushed back from vacations to protest the move by the overvalued Americans. Panicked businessmen began selling off their stocks of export-dependent industries at huge losses as the Japanese government absorbed over $400 million in dollar sales. Having expected uh, some change in monetary policy, but rolled out in a more gradual fashion, Tokyo called the, called the gold dollar move the second Nixon shock, following the first shock, the opening to China a month before. But Japan had no choice but to succumb to yen revaluation. Connolly gloated. Clearly, he said, Americans were no longer patsies. European officials noted the demi-victoire américaine of yen revaluation and more European liquidity that a French economic minister charged forced America's vassal friends to pay tribute to the U.S. master. No, 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 cried French minister Giscard d'Estaing as EEC members charged that just because America was losing abroad, it wanted to change the rules. Germany took its medicine as a loyal ally, having already floated its mark, even though companies like Volkswagen, which sold one-third of its cars in America, now faced a 15% price hike due to the floating mark and surcharge. Britain reacted similarly, appreciating America's hard-headed policy and urged others to respond in an equally realistic spirit. The import surcharge actually was the real thorn. It enraged the European common market nations as well as Canada and Latin America as bullying, illogical, and even immoral. But Nixon assured them that protectionism was temporary. Countering Connolly's bludgeoning techniques and don't give a damn attitude, the president did make a significant side agreement to protect the textile industry and then resumed the march for free trade, catalyzed by freer floating currencies that soon crossed international borders um, in loads. Despite quelling friendly fire abroad, Nixon still had the plights of the environment, welfare recipients, unemployed prospective home buyers, and inflation-ridden consumers to deal with at home. No wonder the president wanted to run off to China, crowed the Democrats. In the best show of partisanship, they booed from the sideline, although they largely stomached the new economic policy at first and the basics of globalization in the long run. But there was trouble from and for the average working American. Unions understood the need for remedies to inflation. But the president, president's plan leaned heavily toward business. The rank and file initially backed Nixon, even on the wage lid, because they understood the need to fight inflation. Over the ensuing months, however, those Americans realized that the breaks for business would be paid from their own pockets. The small union and organized labor were stuck with a wage freeze that limited purchasing power. Middle-class public servants didn't buy Nixon ar Nixon's argument that the inflationary spiral could be tamed only by sacrifices from unions. By October, polls revealed that even a third of those in high-income brackets believed that the working person was getting a raw deal with the wage freeze, while business got ta tax cuts and continued dividends and profits. Even pro football players complained. Mike Battle of the New York Jets forced to accept his option at 90% contract because he couldn't get a raise, retired from the game instead of taking the cut. Mix of controls was punishing. Even military personnel, who had earlier backed the freeze out of their patriotic duty, grew angry that government workers bore the brunt of the wage controls, including their extension after the 90 days. An Air Force sergeant stationed in the Netherlands wrote of the upward revaluation of the Dutch Gilder by 7% due to the Nixon shock, that made rent, utilities, and other goods and services more expensive. A military family, he informed House Speaker Carl Albert, could not sustain the conflicting goals of improving the dollar 
balance of payments and maintaining a living of standard enjoyed by the average American citizen back home. Was there class consciousness? A constituent of House Ways and Means Chairman Wilbur Mills told the congressman that the whole price policy was a farce. Wholesalers raised their prices, so retailers raised theirs, he complained, and it's a vicious circle, one that hurts only the working class. Another constituent wrote that rather than being on welfare, my husband and I work hard to make a living. It just seems to no avail. You could almost hear the cries against the 1%. Organized labor agreed to the August 15th plan only if it meant a so-called test of equity that indicated business did not receive a bonanza at the expense of the poor, unemployed, and the consumer, or those near the bottom of the economic ladder, added the Retail Clerks International Association. Nixon, though, failed that test. Big labor focused on the sanctity of contracts. Was it right that a government edict could kill a deal agreed to by Caterpillar and John Deere with the United Auto Workers that called for raises during the 90-day freeze? Absolutely not. AFL-CIO Chief George Meany soon denounced the new economic policy as discriminatory toward workers, calling it inequitable, unjust, unfair, and unworkable. The White House countered that Meany was out of step with workers, and Meany soon got his revenge. At the AFL-CIO National Convention in Miami in mid-November 1971, this former 77-year-old former plumber from the Bronx upbraided the president by banning TV cameras and the playing of Hail to the Chief as Nixon entered, uh, climbed up on the podium to speak. And he gave Nixon just a one-line introduction. The president abandoned hope of attracting labor into his new majority and said the rate wage controls would remain. The August 15th plan was a sign of rupture between labor and the administration, but not necessarily to Nixon's disadvantage. The AFL-CIO seemed like a defender of its narrow interests, apparently sticking it to business by advocating price but not wage controls. In any case, case class warfare was underway, regardless of denials by politicians from that point forward. The American working man isn't stupid, warned Congressman Mills, who pondered or run for the presidency in 1972. He might not know the exchange rate for the dollar, but he knows when the price of bread becomes too much to bear or when he can't afford the life he dreamed as a boy. Mills backed the Nixon shock, especially the import fee and currency realignment that woke up U.S. trade partners to American problems. But Nixon's game plan had not helped farmers manufacturers, workers, or the economy as a whole. Like many, Mills worried about the follow-up after the 90-day freeze was over. Would inflation be resurgent and workers suffer? Indeed, the Cost of Living Council, headed by Connolly and operated by Donald Rumsfeld, denied hundreds of daily requests from exe for exemptions from workers, small landlords and small businesses, to the wage and price controls over the next several months. The white Archie Bunkers, moreover, were not the only complainants. The National Urban League, representing black labor and civil rights activists, also targeted the wage price freeze. The Nixon shock was, in truth, state capitalism designed to, to serve the special interests of the biggest and richest corporations, said the National Urban League. The Black Caucus to the AFL-CIO convention was urged to take up the economic phase of civil rights of the civil rights movement by campaigning against the fallacy that wages and prices equally contribute to inflation. In response, led by the Reverend Jesse Jackson, chief of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference's Operation Breadbasket, the 30 black delegates of the caucus tried to forge a coalition with George Meany. That effort was circumscribed by the racial divide, but the delegates spoke out ne nevertheless against the service economy that favored the rising professional upper middle classes and encouraged a general strike to protest the pay board's wage guidelines. As the president prepared for his historic journey to China, Vernon Jordan of the Urban League and the United Negro College Fund urged him to make as well a spiritual pilgrimage to black America to demonstrate his concern with hungry children and jobless fathers as he is demonstrating his concern with strategies of world politics. African Americans pleaded with Nixon, the leaders of the West, that this this country's balance of payments deficit is small when compared to the deficit 
in its social balance, and it cannot afford to solve the one at the expense of the other. Such remarks indicated to commentators the reality of class divisions. Brookings Institution economist Arthur Oaken noticed that 6% unemployment meant a world of fear and insecurity and a world of envy and distrust. As every worker, teenager headed for the job market, or mother sending a child into the workforce asks whether society wants him, whether it values his contribution. The victim searches for scapegoats in the business community that cuts back on training programs among older people clinging to their jobs or from foreign competition. Ultimately, this effort, said Oaken, pits class against class in an outbreak of social divisiveness in a weak economy. Clearly troubled, White House advisor Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a former stevedore who had flirted with socialism in his youth, weighed in. Businessmen got too much blame for economic downturns, said Moynihan. The real issue lay in the wrong-headed assumption that society had gone wrong because we have achieved great wealth through free enterprise. Ironically, even allies overseas, most associated with traditional socialist doctrine, understood the value of U.S. business. But for Moynihan, too, it came down to the class struggle. In an assessment that can be rolled forward by decades and superimposed on the Occupy, Tea Party, and anti-globalization movements, Moynihan charged that extremists had seized the mantle of intellectual leadership in the country. America had entered a period, he called it, of vulgarity, in which common sense was overwhelmed by the sudden emergence of revolutionary neo-Marxist critiques of American society, in which the moderate to conservative forces of the society remained silent. To his credit, Nixon was somewhat boxed in by the circumstances. He acted innovatively to extract himself from the country. His, his new economic policy reacted to immediate monetary and inflation crises, and his plan, for the most part, represented wise stewardship in the short run. He could also not foresee the revolutionary transformation wrought by technology and the deregulation of currency markets. Furthermore, Nixon's heart might very well have been with the blue-collar worker. But the notion that capitalist prosperity, the democratic way of life, and that peace were threatened by a radical ethos that had swept through universities and unions was ludicrous. We should also recognize that Nixon was not the only culprit to be accused of neglecting the small fish. The liberal establishment, like conservatives, also swam in the tank of the conservative market, market ethic, and largely still does. Looking back over the decades of a decimated labor movement and growing inequities in wealth, Reliance on unrestrained globalization in the market can be questioned. Historian Stephen Thernstrom showed that post-war genera generational, occupational, and even racial mobility was fairly constant up to the point he ended his study of Boston and other big cities in 1970. In the past 40 years, though, social scientists suggest that upward mobility is more sticky, and some conclude that it has actually declined. At the very point of the onset of modern-day globalization, I believe, on August 15, 1971, U.S. society became less dynamic for the lower and middle classes, even when compared to other nations' social mobility. The squeeze was on. This despite an ingrained dogma that seeking the American dream will bring rewards. Sometimes that's true. Capitalism and the freedom that serves as its foundation provides opportunity for great individual success. But Steve Jobs is the exception, the winner, if you will, of life's lottery. Many more have not been moving on up, like Archie Bunker's neighbor, the dry-cleaning magnate George Jefferson. This is not to say that life's always fair, but that if the American dream of changing one's lot through hard work and luck is a fraud for many, and they remain mired in their condition, then we definitely do not live in a classless society and that class conflict the horror of more conservative voices uh, is in existence or should exist. We shouldn't embrace Archie Bunker's Herbert Hoover, Mr. A Man That We Could Use, as the opening song to All in the Family goes, to ensure wealth for the cosmopolitan set. Only Archie would recognize the problems today with an ever more per market perfected form of global globalization, a process that has become orthodox ideology. It is a matter of faith that has supplanted reasonable and fair formulations of economic practice for the greater good. With the regulatory golden age of the American century having given way to the growth-oriented market era and competitors challenging the United States, it is now clear that there were winners and losers 
a lot of losers over the past 40 years. Just as serious, laissez-faire globalization undermines not just the greater welfare, but also loyalty and unity, and thus emasculates our political ability to pull in the same direction when we face such crisis times. Billionaires and huge corporations do not necessarily care about their nations, and they also chip away at effective, acceptable remedies for the large majority. August 15, 1971, and October 2008 should awaken us to the emergence of a brutal world run by free market dogma. The Nixon shock should remind us that while structural changes compel adjustment, we must also share in the prosperity and alleviating hardship. The Occupy and Tea Party movements, the Nixon shock, as well as the Great Depression even, have repeatedly dredged up fears of class, divisions if not warfare based on inequality. Bruce Springsteen's most recent al album, Wrecking Ball, like many of his recordings since the 1970s, has recognized the true, uh, has recognized, excuse me, the current situation in numerous songs. In the track Rocky Ground, he laments that though the average Joe may use his mind and muscle and raise his children to walk straight and sure, the sad truth is that the bottom's dropping out, and where you once had faith, now there's only doubt. That's a bleak view of our future one borne out by statistics that show the middle class shrinking, the poor growing, and the upper fifth share of incomes trending ever upward. And the erosion of the middle class could put democracy itself in jeopardy. Perhaps with some attention we begin to remedy the situation wrought by globalization, the neglect of class divisions. Forty years ago, Archie Bunker saw the omen. Some months before August 15th, 1971 shuttered the American century. All in the Family aired an episode about Archie's company's imminent downsizing, ah, a term we have become very familiar with in Globalization Zero. He recalled that his father had been laid off during the Great Depression. My old man never got over it, Archie quietly lamented, took the heart right out of him. And he wasn't all that old, neither, you know. He's just about my age now. Change happens, of course. But the remedy to Archie's problem of downsizing the workforce, the August 15, 1971 economic shock of temporary inter state intervention to smooth the way for unfettered market globalization, the remedy was good government. So too did the cascades of home foreclosures and losses in retirement accounts for the middle class in 2008 to 2010 require intervention. We should remember that while globalization is inevitable, the processes, its processes, course, and consequences don't have to be. Free trade globalization should not be a matter of faith. Workers of the world will not unite, nor should they, nor do we want to diminish the positive effects of globalization in culture and even economically. Sure, curbing the excesses of financialization of free trade may sound like the third world rhetoric of complaints against the rich from the 1970s, but protest against Nixon, as it is today, shares in that attitude toward what can be predatory and heartless globalization. Not to be preaching up here, which I'm going on now, but I'm an optimist. Good regulatory policy starts with a coherent industrial policy, a dose perhaps of social democracy, and some application even of judicious and creative protections and incentives for workers and unions. Negotiated in Congress and at the World Trade Organization, these solutions can at least cushion the impact of the market. Think, for example, how the fair trade movement has helped pour the world over. And we could certainly use a clear, sophisticated, but accessible explanation by a president of how government assistance and liberalism helps the lower and middle classes rather than being their enemy. Willpower and positive government boosterism and umpiring between classes might modify globalization and thus change the history of inequality. People around the world, including the Pope, counsel such a course. And our recent economic crisis should even stir us historians to wake up the class struggle, a domestic and worldwide struggle, and scholars as well as the public will be better off for our leadership. Thank you. I'm going to man the barricades now. Sure, I'd love to field questions or comments. Sure. So could you square why workers of the world should not unite with what you're talking about are, it's almost in the same paragraph global class struggle. So, so if workers of the world should not unite, should, at what scale should they organize? What, what's the right scale of not global? Um, 
I think it's going to happen. I think it's the, the organization is going to have to happen at a national level first. You're going to have to sort of uh, rekindle um, uh, some of these labor organizations and, and try to rekindle, especially in the United States, a uh, support um, for, for unionized labor at first. I think then, yes, um, and that's something I, I might go back and, and revise to, uh, perhaps over uh, or underplayed that workers will have to um, seek, seek supporters you know, around the world too. Um, I just don't know though if the, the initial place to do this would be say an international labor organization or labor world labor conferences. I think you're going to have to get the support of American labor first. And, and, and you know, curiously, although I'd love to hear your thoughts on it too, you know, labor is, it, labor workers are very nationalistic. And, and the, the same forces of globalization that probably are inimical to their interests appeal to them on that basis too. Um, so you're going to have to change that. Yep, and I've thought a lot about that, and I have definitely evolved in 20 years um, to be a perhaps more careful uh, or advocate of more careful trading. Um, first off, there is a bit of sensationalism involved uh, in, the, in trade debates um, that the side in favor of free trade always brings up. You see, you slide down the road of protectionism and you're going to have Smoot-Hawley and a Great Depression all over again. There's, there's a bit of work being done, uh, Douglas Irwin and others who just wrote a book on Smoot-Hawley that say actually, um, you know, it wasn't really a, it was a, it was a product of the Great Depression but didn't cause it, you know, that it wasn't as bad as people thought. Um, I have, you know, look closer at that work too, but I think there is, in the, in the post-World War II era, there was this notion um, for reasons of prosecuting the Cold War, making our allies more stable and more prosperous so they would be strong, uh, that America had to open its markets, open it, oh, and, and, and import. And we could take it for a, uh, a, a long time as long as the government was also willing to fund a lot of training programs and, and make side agreements, political side agreements, um, uh, up until the 1970s. It is dangerous. It is a dangerous road to go down. Um, but I think um, you have an organization like the World Trade Organization. Um, you have a uh, um, uh, federal government um, agencies that are, that, are, that are able to sort of gauge, uh, International Trade Commission and others, sort of gauge the impact of imports on these industries. Um, I'm not advocating that we go back to um, the horse and buggy. Right, that things things do change, and it's tricky. And I'm 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 kind of you know I'm always going one side or the other here too. Uh, but I think trade policy has to be treated in a more realistic way than it has in the past, than less ideologically. I guess that's what I'm saying. I 
I guess it is more structural. I, I, I'm trying to make a case that I don't think the government botched it at all. I think it knew exactly what it was doing. I think Nixon knew, uh, n not the long term. He didn't know how things were going to turn out, you know, 20, 30 years down the road. Um, but this was a, uh, a naturally pro-corporate, pro pro-free trade uh, agreements were made. Um, China and India, sure, the, the, uh, they had a long way to come up. Right, and so we've seen that, and it's remarkable. And all credit to uh, you know an authoritarian government in China, um, but there has been more prosperity. But you wonder. I I, I think historians, economists are going to look even more closely as they are already doing at the downsides of what's happening in China, um, especially or India. Uh, that that you're going to have skewed, you know, inequality there too. Uh, that the we already know about the standards of work there, too. Those have been on, you know, you know national television news documentaries, too. So I'm not so sure um, that, that, that that process of globalization or the process of globalization has, gr has benefited everybody in China. Um, maybe this is getting back to the, the, global, the, the global view of this, too, um, I, um, that, that all these governments Governments ultimately haven't responded properly or adequately for the masses. Um, it's, it's hard to knock China. It's hard to knock India now. Um, maybe the Russians, maybe the South Africans and others, they're you know, growing rapidly. But I think you also can turn right around and take a look at Ireland uh, or Iceland or some of these other countries that did, you know, greatly benefited, right, or seemingly greatly benefited from globalization. We're, we're humming along and then boom. The bottom dropped out too. Um, so again, I mean that's a long-winded way of answering your question. I don't know if I did, but I but I, I don't I I don't think Nixon, um, in in his mind, at least, and I don't think he really had made a mistake. He, his goal here was a short-term political fix here, um, I, I, but I think he opened the door. I think he did open the door uh, to forces that he 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 likely supported to get back to the market, um, but probably not in any way he could envision in the, in the, in the, in the scope and grandeur of this globalization. Um, I believe so. I think um, you know Arthur Burns of the, uh, the Federal Reserve Chair was very upset with this new economic with with the gold, especially the gold move. Um, uh, so so I think Nixon, you know, agreed. Um, and, you know, and, and interest rates too. Again, as I, I quoted in the Eisenhower years, he was very you know the the bankers had said cool cool down the economy, raise interest rates, and he he really believed that had totally undermined. I mean, it kept the recession going in the late 50s into the early, into 1960 and, and ruined it. So I just don't think he wanted to mess with interest rates. We'll get back to it, all right? Yeah, sure. Mm. Mm. Good. And, and that, that, that's a great question. Um, uh, and, and it's you know, almost impossible to answer, although I will say that Nixon was extremely skilled. And, uh, uh, and I think uh, many historians have appreciated it as a politician and certainly as a diplomat. Um, he, he, he knew he had credentials uh, in the international community as a as a 
you know, far-seeing and, and sort of stable uh, thinker when it came to diplomacy. Uh, so he could get away with this, what was essentially a domestic political move. Um, whether another president, um, I, I, think, I think another president would have differed is that he probably wouldn't have issued a Nixon shock. As the, Jap as the Japanese responded, we knew you were going to do something like this, but we thought it would be a gradual process of reform in the international monetary system. So did the Europeans. Um, they thought there would be discussion and, 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 and it would happen over time. Not like this. So I think, so I think Nixon did that. You know, as you, as you probably know, too, um, there was a third Nixon shock. Um, you know, it happened just a few weeks after this in the textile shock when Nixon invoked, for the first time since World War I, the Trading with the Enemy Act against the Japanese. Uh, when, they, when he saw them reneging on a deal to limit their textile exports to the United States, he invoked trading with the enemy and was, hey, people said, what are you doing? How can you do that? But I think Nixon, you know, had paved the way in, in back channels uh, to be able to do that. I, I think then you're dealing with a president and a treasury secretary who liked, as they call it, the big play. They liked this shocking announcement. Um, perhaps also knew, Connolly was always insecure as he even admitted in his memoirs about dealing with economic issues. So perhaps this was also a way to deal with very complicated economic issues in a very simplistic way that would wake up Americans, that would have an impact at home. Um, so I think Nixon did make a difference. Uh, I, I can't see, I can't see a, a Barack Obama uh, or even a Gerald Ford doing this either. You, you, Bob, you've really hit on, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, you know, I only have so much time in a, in a talk. I just wanted this sort of, and it was this Nixon research um, that uh, fortunately or unfortunately when 2008 hit, um, you know, it sort of drove home um, uh, how important that, that 1971 period is. The more I looked at it, I was surprised to find in 1971 how much anxiety there was. Um, so you're absolutely right. I mean, you look at a turning point even uh, I think this is the opening. Let me put it this way. I want to package this as the opening salvo in, of turning points. But you look just a few years down the road, as you know, the first oil crisis. Um, most people, uh, Tim Borselman in his new book on the 70s, focuses on 1973-74 as that's the turning point. Others have called it 78-79, either the other second oil crisis or the point economists have done this where um, real wages fall for the first time, late 70s. Um, I mean, you could probably take a look at the, you know, Ronald Reagan is the turning point, right? I mean, there, there you see that, that whole, uh, you know, it's, it's the era we're living in now, too. Certainly tax and trade. I don't want to pretend, and I perhaps overplayed that, too. I don't want to pretend that this is, you know, this is a linear process. I think there are a lot of points along the road. Um, the Asian crisis, I mean, internationally, if you think of the Asian crisis, 97, 98. Uh, even the dot-com, I mean, for this country and, and around the world, those are major points. But what I found uh, and found that I had to search more of is when I went, especially into congressional archives where you're finding constituent mail, and you're finding now the average person writing in, they have woken up. They're saying things like, what, what you, what's, what's happening? I, I thought everything was fine. We, we, we were upset by Vietnam and all those long hairs protesting around the Pentagon. I got that in foreign policy, but never had a worry about the economy. And you're seeing that then over the summer of 1971. And that's why he reacts like that. He, he responds. Um, I think historians, I think they've written about this. I think there needs to be more. That's what I'm going to uh, write about. Um, but I don't, I don't think he had seen this sort of anxiety at this magnitude um, before. Uh, but sure, 
Sure. I mean, you, you could take, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of points. And here. I was thinking in particular about the way you frame this in terms of growing inequality being a function of early moves toward globalization. Couldn't you argue, let's say, that had the United States maintained the system of taxation that it had under Nixon, the inequality yep. over the 40 subsequent years would have been much less acute? Right on, I think you're right on the mark. As I mentioned here, I think Nixon was the, the last major liberal, as, if you want, in, a, in the Republican Party. There were others. But in terms of being, exer being able to exercise power, Nixon, Nick, you know, when I, doing research the Nixon Library, it was remarkable. And I could be off, and I'll look for your guidance on this. I found Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon much more in line than Nixon, Reagan, Bush too, and what's happened. I, I, I got a feeling Nixon couldn't be in the Republican Party now. I mean, in ways he could, but on, on fiscal, international economic policy, I, I, don't, I think he'd be tossed out. I just don't think he would be, I think he'd be a, a moderate Democrat now. So certainly, um, you know, uh, you know time, time to change a lot, and I think, and again, I, I was, I'm careful. I've put in uh, the paragraph about giving Nixon some credit too. Um, because I think he was, you know, if, if he had continued into 1980s, 90s with Nixon, a new economic policy in the broad terms, I think we'd be better off. But that wasn't the case. And I think Reagan, Reagan's timing was perfect. You know, the 70s really was a terrible time um, or, or a downtime economically. And, and he capitalized on that in, a, in I think, a very, a very cheap way. I think he just played up this, this, this nationalism, this patriotic nationalism, this, this you know, freedom motif, and, we, and we're living with it now. Yes, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for your comments. That's how I'll frame that too. Yeah. Yeah. It's post 73 where income inequality just blooms. Yeah. I have to frame and that clear. Yeah, so yeah. I, I even mentioned so. in there that it's the perceptions too. I guess that's what I was driving at too, is that people are sort of waking up now saying, ah, that's a new era. Well, yeah, I think you're completely right. Nixon is a wild actor in a sense. Dramatic, bold moves. 